Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're new to the podcast, we release a new episode every Thursday, so subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of them. This week we're shifting our attention to Porchester Castle in Hampshire on England's south coast. Situated at the northern end of Portsmouth Harbour, this site has a history stretching back as far as the Romans. But as we're about to discover, the later castle was also a place for thousands of international prisoners during the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, including 2,000 black soldiers. Joining us now to talk about how the prisoners came to be here, what prison life was like for them, and how their stories are being brought to life for today's visitors are our three guests. Hi, uh, I'm Dominique Bouchard. I'm Head of Learning and Interpretation at English Heritage. Hiya, I'm Lakeisha Ariangelo. I am a freelance playwright and director and also associate director at Soho Theatre. Hi, I'm Laura Bosworth and I'm the Education Visits Officer for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight and my site responsibilities include the wonderful Porchester Castle. Thank you all for coming on. Let's begin with Dominique and try to understand a bit more about the background to the story. When was Porchester Castle used as this prison? Well, Porchester first held prisoners during the Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 1660s, but it was really um, its final phase as a prison, which was during the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, and that was from 1793 to 1815. We saw the greatest number of prisoners at the castle, up to 8,000 people at any one time. And can you explain for people who aren't too familiar with this period of history, what was going on during the, the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars? Yeah, so between 1792 and 1815, this was a time of a lot of conflict, particularly between Britain and France. This was the time when the French Republic and later the French Empire under Napoleon Bonaparte were involved in wars that really reconfigured the way in which societies in Europe, across the Atlantic, and way beyond were kind of shaped. The the wars became known as the French Revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars because of that. So because of their kind of prolonged length and the vast scale, they wrought extensive destruction and population on populations and landscapes globally. And they also generated really remarkable innovations and tactics. The parts of the war that many people will be familiar with or most familiar with are, of course, the Battle of Trafalgar and the Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon was finally defeated. Yes. And of course, that was fought not in Britain, but 
in the Low Countries, wasn't it? So it was a fought, it was a war that was fought abroad. That's right. And the battles of these wars took place really around the world. And we're most familiar with Trafalgar and Waterloo. But of course, the Caribbean was an important theater of war during this period as well. Of course. And that sort of brings us into asking how these prisoners from other parts of the world, far-flung parts of the world, ended up at Porchester Castle. So why were prisoners being detained at Porchester? Well, during the 18th century, the warring nations tended to exchange prisoners at regular intervals. So you'd have a battle, you'd capture some soldiers, then there'd be a prisoner exchange, and kind of you'd continue. But after Napoleon seized power in France, that system broke down. And so that means that you know, the prisoner exchanges weren't happening at the, with the regularity as they might have been. And the number of enemy soldiers imprisoned by Britain went from about 13,500 in 1795 to more than 17,000 before the end of the war in 1814. The prisoners at Portchester were kept there until the Peace of Amiens was signed in March of 1802. And again, although war, war broke out again in 1803, the castle was used as a barracks and ordnance store until about 1810, when it became again a prisoner of war depot until the war ended in 1814. How many prisoners would have been held at Portchester at any one time? Did it fluctuate over the centuries? Because obviously this goes back to the 1600s, doesn't it? It definitely fluctuated. The castle, I guess, at its height of its maximum capacity, it could hold about 8,000 prisoners. And if you've been to Port Chester, it's hard to imagine 8,000 people in the castle keep and in the grounds and everything. Not all the prisoners were held in the castle keep. Some of them were held in new wooden buildings erected around the outer bailey, so within the Roman fort walls, but outside of the main castle bailey. And then, of course, they were kept in the castle keep as well and in buildings around it. So the numbers really varied over the years, depending on the campaigns that Britain was involved in at the time. So in about 1795, there were just under 5,000 prisoners, but by 1814, there were 7,000. And at the time, I guess it was one of 12 prisoner of war depots in Britain. Yes, and we should probably also mention that within the Solent area, the Portsmouth Harbour area on the south coast of England there, I think there were some other places where you also might find prisoners nearby. Yes, that's definitely true. So in that period, again, 1793 to 1815, there were about a quarter of a million prisoners held in Britain. It's a vast number of people at Chatham, Plymouth, around Portsmouth, there'd be that, there'd be places as well. And of course, many prisoners were held on prison hulks or ships in the harbour as well. Hmm. Amazing. <laughs> Some population of people who all need to be fed and watered. And so in the introduction, we said that these prisoners were international. Which countries did they come from? So obviously a lot of countries are involved in these conflicts between Britain and France, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. So most of the prisoners held at Port Chester were French, but there were also Dutch and Spanish prisoners. Other nationalities of prisoners were Americans, Danes, Germans, Italians, Lascars from Southeast Asia, and, and people from Southeast Asia who were probably Malay. And that cosmopolitan mix really reflected the global nature of the war and the international makeup of some of these armies. And of course, the prisoners also wouldn't just have been soldiers. They also included soldiers' wives and their families, as well as passengers and crews from civilian ships that were captured by Britain. In the prison system, the different nationalities tended to be kept apart within the castle to avoid conflict. And during the 1790s, for example, French prisoners were held in prison blocks in the Outer Bailey. The Spanish prisoners were held in Asherton's Tower at the northeast corner of the Inner Bailey, and Dutch prisoners were in the keep. So you had a, a, a kind of 
a segregated approach to different nationalities being kept in different places. Yes, okay. And without trying to sort of oversimplify this, were these prisoners fighting on different sides before that they were captured? They might well have been. I think there was a lot of, during this period, allegiances changed. And so you had a really complex set of politics happening that meant that people might have been in one place and then sort of found themselves someplace else. And those allegiances were shifting. Yes. So really, before the First World War, as it became called, this was kind of a a very world war, the contest for global territories. It was a global conflict. And I guess with Europeans attempting to conquer and conquering the Americas, you've got war and conflict reaching from Europe to the West. But of course, you had conflict reaching eastwards as well. It's just an incredible scale. And these prisoners, um, obviously, there's there's a vast population being held in various places. Did they expect to be freed after hostilities ceased? Prisoners of war in the 18th century didn't expect typically their captivity to last until the hostilities ended. Most of them would be returned to their home countries as part of a regular program of prisoner exchanges. You know, from Britain's perspective or, or from whoever, whatever country is holding prisoners of war, POWs were really expensive to look after. You had to keep them clothed, fed. You had to look after them medically. So Britain was really keen to return as many as possible to France. During the early part of the war, prisoners were exchanged regularly, and prison doctors would usually be the ones who decided uh, who would be sent back. They typically chose to return people who were sick or wounded, and of course, those people were not only costly to look after, but they'd be unlikely to be sent back down to frontline duty. So it was a way of preventing the soldiers that you're returning to being redeployed immediately. But I meant, as I mentioned, after 1803, the mistrust grew between Britain and France over prisoner exchanges, and far fewer prisoners were sent home. And that, that's what allowed those prisoner numbers to balloon in the way that we mentioned earlier. Most uh, of the prisoners then remained in captivity until the hostilities ended in April 1814. And at that point, all of the prisoners at Portchester Castle were very quickly released. A large number of ships carried them from Portsmouth to France, and a money changer was even employed so that they could exchange their pounds for francs. So at what stage did Porchester Castle become this venue for Caribbean prisoners of war? I guess the beginning of that story really starts on the island of St. Lucia in the Caribbean. So as we've been discussing, when war broke out between Britain and revolutionary France in 1793, the overseas colonies belonging to Britain and France and their European allies, including those colonies in the Caribbean, were also dragged into the war. Many of the Caribbean islands were were much fought over by European powers, and the islands were, of course, inhabited by enslaved African and Caribbean and indigenous populations forced to labor on European-owned plantations. Now, a French-born revolutionary called Victor Hugues captured the island of Guadeloupe from Britain in 1794. He then declared an end to slavery and enlisted many former enslaved and free people of mixed heritage into the French Revolutionary Army. And across the Caribbean, both men of African and of European descent served in racially integrated military units that fought against Britain, and that which was, of course, at the time still a slave-owning nation, on the, and those were on the islands of St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and Guadeloupe primarily. 
On the 26th of May, 1796, the French garrison holding Fort Charlotte on St. Lucia surrendered to British forces. They laid down their weapons and marched out of the fort and onto British ships, and the terms of their surrender ensured that they'd all be treated as prisoners of war rather than slaves, and this is the start of this story. So it was these prisoners who then, in July, were taken back to Port Chester Castle as prisoners of war. Right. And how many of these people were transported from the Caribbean? And also, what roles did they play in the conflict? Because I understand it was a diverse group of people. It's not just men who previously had arms. That's right. So the fleet from the Caribbean had over 2,500 prisoners of war who were mostly black or mixed heritage. But the ship also included about 100 women and children as well, who were the wives and children of these um, of these soldiers. So the journey across the Atlantic to Portsmouth was very, was really treacherous, and at least 268 prisoners and around 100 British soldiers died along the way. So, you know, in the end, about 2,512 prisoners had survived the journey, and that included, and the, the records from the Admiralty have them down as 333 white soldiers, 2,080 black soldiers, women and children, 99. So it was a, it was a pretty horrendous journey. Now, the soldiers themselves, um, some incredible black prisoners who were held at Port Chester during this time, one of the, I guess, notable prisoners was a man called General Marinier, who was a free mixed heritage soldier who'd been commander in chief of the French forces on St. Lucia and had organized resistance to British rule. He was captured on the island of St. Vincent, where he'd been fighting a guerrilla war a few weeks after Fort Charlotte's surrender. Um, his wife, Eulie Piemont, is also listed amongst the people who were brought to Port Chester. Again, there were other very important, very famous Black and mixed heritage soldiers and officers who were amongst the group brought to Port Chester. Fascinating. So quite a lot of additional suffering beyond the uh, conflict itself. What was life like as a Caribbean POW? I think that, you know, many of when they arrived, many of them were very cold or unused to the climate. It was the beginning of really the beginning of winter. It was late autumn. So there was a lot of work to be done to get them additional clothing and blankets. You know, life as a prisoner of war at Port Chester wasn't particularly great. The rations that soldiers had weren't particularly generous, but they were similar to the amount issued to active naval seamen and was probably probably a bit more than the laboring poor of Britain would typically be eating. The prisoners slept in large dormitories, and each prisoner was given a hammock, a mattress, and a blanket. And there was a prison uniform of trousers, of some kind of a shoe or clogs, cotton shirts, a cardigan, and a jacket. And the uniforms were colored yellow to prevent them from being sold and to, of course, identify the prisoners if they tried to escape. So for most of the prisoners of war, that would have been the kind of um, experience they would have had. Not all of the prisoners of war, however, were held in prison ships or in prisons. The captured officers were treated differently than ordinary soldiers and sailors. And many of the officers were allowed to live relatively normal lives in towns and villages on parole, meaning they'd given their word that they wouldn't try to escape while they waited to be exchanged with captured British soldiers and sailors in France. However, though, the Black Caribbean officers, what happened to them, they were treated differently than the white officers. And initially, they were held in the castle keep, but then they were moved. Right. Okay. So there were different levels of treatment according to your heritage and also your rank, effectively. Yes. Right. Yes. 
And were there wash facilities as well? Was life pretty grim on that front? Was it pretty smelly, I expect? And I think life's pretty grim. Probably pretty smelly. If you've been to Portchester Castle, you'll know that it's also really loud. And although now some of the floors are missing, you know, some of the ceilings are higher than they would have been at the time when the prisoners of war were living there, it's really, really echoey. So even when you're on the ground floor, you can hear somebody essentially talking on the top floor. It's really very, very loud. And if you go onto the English Heritage website and you look into this story about Portchester Castle, you'll see a recreation of that kind of dormitory condition. It's a cross-section, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's a cr- exactly. It's a cutaway drawing how it would have looked when it was occupied by prisoners of war. And, you know, it doesn't look like anybody's idea of a good time, I don't think. Okay, so a tough life and a tough journey on top of it as well. But I understand that there was some entertainment. The prisoners, you know, did try and keep their spirits up. They had access to a theatre, I understand, at Porchester Castle. What can you tell us about that? So from 1810, so this was this is after the period of the Black Caribbean soldiers, but in 1810, the I guess the prisoners of war created a theater on the ground floor of the castle keep. And although a lot of the ground floor room sort of is, has been altered, the theaters wouldn't and the theaters wooden stage hasn't survived, but using the clues from the prisoners' memoirs and documents preserved by the prisoner governor and some drawings, We've been able to recreate the stage at Portchester and give an impression of what the theatre would have looked like 200 years ago. And it's incredible. So the Portchester's commander was a, a Captain William Patterson. He seems to have been a kind of cultured man who understood that the prisoners needed to find a way of passing the time. So he provided them with a a lot of wood, canvas and other t- materials to allow them to build stage scenery and boxes. And there was a theatrical troupe that had its leader, is called Jean-Francois Carré, who'd been a, a stage technician at one of the grand theaters in Paris. And it's probably thanks to his knowledge that the Portchester Theater was very highly sophisticated. It said, we have a, a letter that talks about that there were rows of boxes were there so that the room could t- hold 250 or 300 people. There was a, they machined the theater in such a way that the most difficult scene changes could be executed. I mean, this is a really sophisticated setup for, you know, generally, and forget about, you know, having it in a prison is pretty extraordinary. So from the prisoners' memoirs, we know there are about 66 prisoners in the theatrical troupe. Of course, all of them were men, but some specialized in playing, in playing women's parts. And as well as the actors, there were dancers and a 12-piece orchestra. So this is a, a fully functional, you know, pretty sophisticated theatre. Right. So we wouldn't have seen any of the women who were part of the families and the children involved in any of these plays. This was plays put on by male prisoners because they were living all in the same area. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Do we know how many plays were put on and over what sort of period? I don't know that we know exactly how many. Over the next three years, we do know this that the prisoners staged a variety of the plays from one-act comedies to kind of three-act melodramas. And at that time, of course, melodramas were immensely popular in Paris. And of course, these were French prisoners who were doing this. So we have to look to theatre in France as one of its primary influences. And Carré was, of course, sent scripts from some of the latest hits. So the prisoners were performing them at Portchester very soon after they premiered in Paris. And some of the plays they wrote out from memory, but they were also writing their own plays. Two of the troupe 
wrote a full-scale melodrama called Rosliska, or Love, Hate, and Vengeance, taking their inspiration from one of the Paris plays. But Rosliska, and this leads on to what we're going to be talking about in a little bit, addresses a number of the themes close to that were on the minds of the prisoners, you know, escaping from prison, the faithfulness of long separated couples, the humanity of a prison guard. And what's really significant about this is that it gives us a real insight into the sorts of things that the prisoners were thinking about, were talking about. And we see this reflected as well in lots of the other plays. And of course, one of the subject matter that's being reflected and explored is the subject of the revolutionary Caribbean and particularly the Haitian Revolution. And presumably this is all performed in French by French-speaking prisoners of war. Yes. Okay, so their audience is the other prisoners, effectively, the other inmates. Yes, although I think there's some academic work that's showing that actually British audiences were also watching the French prisoners performing French plays. And that was, when you think about it, this is a time when the hostilities between Britain and France were at their height. So it seems to have been a really kind of extraordinary thing that's happening at Portchester. And we also know that the French prisoners took part in theatricals elsewhere in Britain, of course, particularly the officers who were allowed to live on parole in the local community. But the existence of a French prisoner's theater of this scale and complexity is really unique in Britain. I mean, I I, I haven't heard of anything like this anywhere else, of course. And this would have all been performed within the prison walls. So if anyone was watching it who is French-speaking but British, they would have been, I suppose, associated with the military and, and being guards and that sort of thing. I mean, the information that we have about this, the archival work and the, the historical research is fairly new in the history, certainly in the history of Portchester Castle. This information and this history has been surfaced through really rigorous academic and archival research in the last 10 or 15 years. And so we're constantly finding out more and we're trying to understand as much as we can because of just how extraordinary the story is. But it gives us all of these interesting insights into, into life at Britain at the time as well. Yes, it's a really interesting set of questions because audience is central to any cultural product, isn't it? You know, who do you want to see it or interact with it? And uh, that's a really important point. How important was the theatre for the POWs? I suppose it must have helped um, keep them occupied and um, focused on something else apart from their terrible lives. It was really important um, for them. You know, at first, local people were allowed into the castle to watch the plays and all the evidence suggests that they loved what they were seeing. But of course, not everybody was super keen on a bunch of French prisoners of war putting on plays about escaping prison in a prison. So, you know, the proprietor of the main theater in Portsmouth complained, I mean, possibly because he was suffering from the competition, but the government ordered the theater to be closed. But Captain Patterson, who was one of the officers overseeing Port Chester, he realized how much the theater meant to the prisoners and managed to actually persuade the Admiralty to reconsider. And after a few months, it reopened, although now only on the condition that only the prisoners and the garrison should be able to watch the plays. But the content couldn't change or? No, they were still doing their own. They were still writing their own material. They were still performing things, you know, from memory. They were still getting material from France. So it it continued. So it's kind of like you can do your own propaganda. You can do it all in your own language, but um, you can only do it for people who are within these walls, effectively. Yeah. Because it is a sort of propaganda sort of tool, isn't it? Storytelling. 
I think it's a propaganda tool. I think it's a, a form of self-expression. And I think the the ideas that they're talking about, particularly the the play about the Haitian Revolution, is one that is incredibly important for understanding the importance of that revolution and the revolutionaries, and particularly the Black Caribbean revolutionaries, and the role that they play in the revolutionary Atlantic, which is, uh, I guess, an academic term, but looking at this period as a, a period of societal and governmental upheaval, where democracy and the ideals around democracy are being taken up and, and supported. And we see that happening not just in the European countries and through and in, by European powers, but they're inspiring everyone. And that leads to, you know, transformation of the world. Well, yes, and we're transforming people's minds and learning new things through this episode as well. So apart from obviously bringing this to light in the podcast, how else has English Heritage been making people aware about this story of the Caribbean prisoners? It's a part of the permanent interpretation in Portchester Castle. So if you go to Portchester Castle, you can see it there. We've done a couple of podcast episodes, one on our English Heritage's Speaking with Shadows podcast about the Black Caribbean prisoners. On our website, there's a lot of information about Portchester's prisoner of war story, including all of its uh, connected stories about the Haitian Revolution, the prisoner of war theater. But that's all kind of the groundwork. What we've been doing more recently is working with young people, with I'm with artists, to take some of the literature, the play, the theater, and use the format, using the medium of theater, to really get into the story of these soldiers who, you know, clearly influenced not just British history, but world history, and understand how, how we can explore those stories and bring them out at Portchester. And there's this project that's been taking place called Freedom and Revolution. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So Freedom and Revolution was, I guess, is kind of an umbrella project that was looking at the ways in which the Black Caribbean story, prisoner of war story at Portchester, had all of these resonances and provided a really exciting and culturally relevant approach to thinking about those important values of revolution, you know, freedom, liberty, uh, and democracy. And so the idea was to take some of this and take inspiration from the actual plays that were written and performed at Portchester and bring them together. Let's bring in um, Lakeisha Ariangelo to talk about her role in this Freedom and Revolution project. She's Associate Director at Soho Theatre in London. Obviously, you've been hearing all the history from Dominique, and I sense that there's going to be sort of like a some inspiration taken from this story and you're going to be involved somehow and there's going to be a stage and actors. Am I getting the right sense? Um, one of the reasons why I love theatre and one of the reasons why I work in theatre is I think theatre has the power to share stories in a way that can be accessible to everyone. And I think as Dominique was articulating earlier, the prisoners of war were creating their own stories. They were telling stories of people that they knew and of people before them as that sense of self-expression. Um, you know, depending on who is observing it, it could be, you know, whether it could be empowering, it could be propaganda, it could be, you know, so many different things. 
And so I think that's why it's important that we have spaces that we can kind of share stories in, in entertaining ways, in educational ways, in ways that people can, you know, resonate with work and also learn. And so I think there's something really powerful and interesting about giving insight into the history of British history, but also Caribbean history, European history in a a venue or a a historical space that it took place in. And so I think there's there's something really beautiful and alive about that. It's about keeping the kind of history alive because we are carrying it, you know, um, whether it be in our memories or, you know, you know, intergenerationally or in different ways. So I think it's great to kind of like share those stories in as many different ways as possible to reach out to many people as we possibly can. Absolutely. So can people expect to then be able to see some of this theatre, some of this story of the Caribbean prisoners being presented to visitors to Porchester Castle, either in person or through multimedia? Yeah, we are, I say we, there are some screenings of the play that was turned into a film, um, The Ancestors, in different venues. For example, the Slavery Museum in Liverpool, the Africa Centre in in London, and a few other venues that I know that English Heritage and the National Youth Theatre are um, screening publicly. And then it, it will be available online at some point, probably on YouTube or something. Definitely. And also, there are some virtual exhibitions on English Heritage's Google Arts and Culture website that have monologues and interviews with cast members and lots more information about the play and, and it's how it was made and, and the work around it as well. So it's there's a lot of really rich resources out there for anybody wanting to find out more about it. And of course, you can buy the play as well. It's been published by Bloomsbury, but we can get more into that later. Sure. And the play's called The Ancestors. Is that right? It sure is. Yes. 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 Does it take its influence from some of the texts that were performed by the prisoners or is it a fresh piece of work that was commissioned in some way? Um, It's very, very loosely springboarding off one of the playtexts written by the French prisoners of war called the Revolutionary Philanthropist, which was essentially following a few characters like Toussaint Louverture, who was a general in in Haiti or Sandeman, as it was then called. And the texts themselves, the original play texts, were pretty racist, pretty uh, misogynistic and and those types of things. So there's an opportunity to really flip the script, as it were, to be able to speak to contemporary audiences and to really kind of like take the stories and put them in the from the lens of the Caribbean soldiers, families, people. Yeah, so it's a very loosely based on that. And I've kind of springboard off of the themes and characters and historical people. Who wrote it then? Was it the a... original, um, the, the revolutionary philanthropist. Well, the ancestors. Uh, oh, the ancestors, for, me, first... I wrote it. Ah, you wrote it, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I wrote the ancestors. I had worked with some academics from Warwick University and, and Dominique who gave me loads of great information and historical context of the prisoners of wars and the Haitian Revolution and and Napoleonic Wars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I took some of that information and worked with young people from National Youth Theatre. I gave them provocations or excerpts of things that I had started to write, and we um, developed them together. And from that, then I created the full-length play. 
the ancestors which was then because of actually covid um we then made it a, a little bit of a feature film so it is it is available as a play text to read and also as a film that, which will be screened right so one of those films which is a bit like where you go to the cinema sometimes and you can watch something being performed from the west end without going to the west end sort of thing is one of those is that right yeah, absolutely. I think what's different about this is because it was shot in Portchester Castle and the original play itself was designed to be a promenade piece of so the audience moving around the castle, seeing different spaces and seeing kind of like tapestry of stories woven in and around the building. It's filmed in that very way as well. So yeah. it's not on a stage. Um, you're seeing the foregrounds, you're seeing the keep, you're seeing all these really beautiful and quite haunting spaces of Portchester Castle, as well as seeing these stories of black prisoners of war as also people who are fighting in um, Saint-Domain or Haiti. Okay. And for the person viewing this, is the mise-en-scene quite authentic? You know, are they in period dress? Is there sort of any sort of element of set design or is it quite raw and real? There's a great design by Libitod. So they are in period costume and there's very minimal set dressing because Porchetta Castle itself is the set. We haven't shied away from that. We use it in different areas, but we just have you know set pieces. So it should feel quite authentically period drama. But some of the language itself is quite modern. It's a kind of hybrid, I would say, in terms of the theatrical experience. Yes. So it's a hopefully feels a bit more accessible for everyone. That helps convey the story, doesn't it? Because audience is a, is a key thing when you're trying to communicate a message and um, you need to understand what your audience wants and needs. And um, I suppose this helps do that. You know, you're communicating in a language that they will understand. So is the cast quite diverse? So there's a cast of around about 25 young people. And because we have put the focus on the black prisoners of wars and the people that were fighting in Haiti and St. Lucia and other parts of the Caribbean. It's a majority black cast. And what was really beautiful about that experience is having young black people learning about and embodying some historical people and also some kind of fictitious characters and being able to learn about their history and, and history that isn't often told. So it is a really engaging process and illuminating process for everyone involved. I think there's something really important as well about theatre as a medium for this, because in heritage and, and English heritage, you know, one of the things that's so important to us is authenticity. And when you're talking about stories for which the documentation is emerging or there isn't a lot of firsthand documentation, you know, how can we tap into and really understand the lives of people who are long dead? but also maintain that focus and that emphasis on authenticity. One of the ways that we can do that is by working with incredibly talented artists like Lakeisha to start evoking the sense of these places, to start drawing out from the stone of Port Chester itself, you know, metaphorically, the way in which people might have felt. And one of the ways that you can do that is by being in that space. I think one of the reasons why people love coming to English heritage sites is they're in places where history happened. Well, if you're not familiar with a story or a story is completely new to you, then theater, bringing that story to life in front of people is a way for them to really think about those spaces in, in, in new ways and in different ways. And um, one of the things we're most proud of is to be able to take 
a creative art form like theater, which has deep historical roots in Portchester Castle, and to be able to use that art form as a way of of excavating the past and sharing it. So I think what Lakeisha and what the creative team from the National Youth Theater and and what the the actors involved in the play, in shaping the play and then in performing it really did, was demonstrate the deep historical resonance and the truths of these prisoners and of their stories and how clearly those stories, they're still so present at Port Chester Castle today. So I think it's been a transformational experience, certainly for me, but I think visitors to Port Chester will see and experience something totally new, even if they don't sort of see the play. You can bring a copy of it with you and read it in the space, and it'll be really, really incredible. Step into England's story. That's it, isn't it, really? But this time with theatre, with a theatre text. Did you have a transformational kind of experience in being involved in this project, Lakeisha, because presumably you're a bit older than the actors who you were working with. Did you learn much about this at school? And have you learned quite a lot? Yeah, as being it involved? was very much a transformational experience for me too. When the National Youth Theatre got in touch with me initially, I'm like, oh, we're interested in um, having a play made about some black prisons of war in you know the 1700s and 1800s I was like okay say more because this is completely new to me and then they talked about the Haitian revolution which I knew bits about and I was like great this sounds really interesting and I think the point of interest for me started even more so when we were talking about the thousands of people that were populating Port Chester Castle and space around Port Chester Castle the only history that I had been taught about black people in this country was the um, the slave trade. And so this was really exciting to hear of people that look like me in this country that I also, you know, was born and raised in. That isn't about being enslaved. Yes, there were, there were prisoners, but there was some agency. They weren't shackled. They were there as free people. So that was completely brand new information to me. And I think that was something that was really new to the young people that we worked with as well. And it does something to you psychologically and emotionally, I think, when you are presented with the knowledge of lives of people like yourself who were freedom fighters. It was it was a really powerful experience. There's 10, 15 years between me and the young people that I worked with, but we were all sharing in this newfound information, which is really beautiful. I think the history that we get told in British education at at the moment, maybe it's shifting, is about American enslavement of of Africans. And and there's the kind of distance in that that the British have done of their involvement in the, the, um, the slave trade. And so I think there's, it's been nice to kind of bridge the gaps and amplify knowledge and also give voices or platform those voices of those people that you know like Dominic said have long gone and haven't had their stories told so it's definitely a transformational experience you know it helps you think about your your identity your history your heritage in different ways which is really really profound. Yes and it strikes me that this is a play that's communicating to a broad audience yeah, it is a universal story in terms of struggle, strife, fighting for freedom or whatever that looks like. And that's, you know, that's applicable to different cultures and periods of history. It's about the human condition. It's about love. It's about 
politics, you know, a really complicated political system that I think we are still learning about and still trying to understand the fact that there were black Caribbeans and mixed race, mixed heritage Caribbeans who were involved in having their own enslaved people. So that is, you know, that's a very tiny, tiny piece of really complicated history. And I think there's something really applicable and really accessible to everyone. I definitely do think that global majority and black audiences will appreciate this piece of work in a in a way that might feel really profound. But I also think that is a, definitely is a universal story. There's something about the fact that we're using young people to tell this story is is something in itself. I think hopefully that will bring in younger audiences who may feel that English heritage sites aren't for them or aren't spaces that they might feel welcome. But seeing the setting front and centre as well as the people that hopefully will allow lots of young people understand that they too are welcome and actually they have ownership of those spaces as well. So broadly speaking, this performance is is a way for people to get into the story, to understand history and heritage and learn something. And that sort of brings in the learning aspect, which Laura is responsible for as Education Visits Officer for English Heritage. Laura, can you tell us about how you got involved in this project? You know, why did you decide to develop learning resources around prisoners of Porchester's history told through theatre? Well, I probably have to make a bit of a confession to start with and say that before I started working at English Heritage, I'd seen the lovely Porchester Castle on my way out of Portsmouth on many trips, but had never actually visited. And when I did get the job and I did go and visit, like many people, I assumed I would know a lot about the history because I could see the wonderful Roman walls and thought, oh, you know, there's going to be a lot here that's familiar to me. And then I discovered the story of the prisoners, which was so unique and interesting and something as both Dominique and Lakeisha have referred to, something that people had not really made me aware of. I, you know, even though I was fairly local and had been around for a long time, it was a story that hadn't been brought to my mind. So then being able to work within English heritage and be given the brief to bring a story alive where it happened, it was an obvious extension of the resources and the materials we already had to start working on the prisoner's story and think about how we could enable school children, students and teachers to access this unique story. So that was our starting point, really. I see. So it's, it's really about unpicking parts of history that um, are obscure and bringing them to light so that people can understand. You know, it's not history is so multifaceted. There are so many stories that you can tell. Yes, and I think we've moved away from the idea that we have all the answers. Uh, I mean, I can remember when I was at school where you thought history was all about facts But as we've already talked about, history and our understanding of history evolves all of the time. And, you know, the story of the prisoners in particular with the work of Warwick University and Dr. Catherine Asprey finding the box. Dr. Devon Cox, who wrote his PhD, found a box about the theatre. They didn't think there would be much of a story, but then it has this rich wealth of evidence that began to explore a story that previously had not been told. So when you can relay that to children and allow them to understand that 
they too may unlock stories in the future that we don't even know about yet. It becomes a very exciting exploration for them. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, these pieces of evidence were just lying in wait to be discovered. It's almost like you're archaeologists uh, in a way. (laughs) It is indeed. And I mean, what child doesn't enjoy a treasure hunt? So the idea that you can find this wonderful historical treasure and it begins to tell you something you didn't know before obviously has a mystery to it, but also is very enticing when you're young. Speaking of youngsters, how can children and young people and also their teachers get involved and learn more about this particular story? So we do have some workshops which schools visit and they can come and take part in those workshops. And the workshops we do around the prisoners really encourage the young people to walk literally in the footsteps of the prisoners. So we meet them outside of the castle on the water's edge and get them to begin to think about what it might have been like to have landed and be taken into Porchester Castle. With young people, it's really important. You help them. We start outside the prison walls or the castle walls on the water's edge and get them to think about how they might have felt arriving at Porchester Castle. It's really important to encourage them to relate to things they already know or have experienced. So when we start talking about the theatre, we do talk about, you know, what do they do when they're bored and how would they have relieved their boredom if they were a prisoner? And then we take them back in time and think, so why was the theatre important? And the young people are really keen to debate, give their ideas, talk about freedom, human rights, and get very involved in beginning to unpack their perspective on history, which is another thing we want to do. We don't want them to assume that there's one perspective that is the right perspective, that we've all got to you know, look at evidence and also think deeply about some of these stories. Absolutely, because that's something that they will have to take through into GCSE and A-level and perhaps even beyond if they want to study history. Absolutely. Um, further on, you have to really have critical minds, don't they? You know, and really think things through and try and have empathy as well for people in the past. Yeah, empathy is so important, but also being able to justify the reasons you're giving, be able to give explanations for why you're arguing the point you're arguing and show how you've taken evidence and research. Yes, so any aspiring lawyers, this is a good one for you as well. So ask your teacher if you can go on a school trip to Porchester Castle and learn about the Caribbean prisoners. Yeah, so if you want to come and visit, which I hope you all will now you've heard these wonderful stories, it's really simple. You go on to Porchester Castle's schools page or just look at English Heritage School Visits and select Porchester Castle and you'll be able to book a visit. You can also visit the site yourself. Teachers and group leaders can have free visits to the site to pre-plan what they might do with their students. And there's also a wealth of resources online to help you prepare work back in the classroom, both before and after the visits. And that's all on our school's pages for Porchester Castle. Right. These trips are completely free. I suppose they just need to provide a, a bus and, you know, and some lunch for the kids or something. Yes, all those who work in school will know no trip is completely free because of the buses. But from the point of view of entering Porchester Castle, you can come on a free education visit. If you choose to do one of the workshops, there is a cost to that, but it is just £100 for a class group to do that workshop. 
well worth the money. So, Dominique, um, you know, a long story that we've covered today, but a really important one. How significant has it been for English Heritage to explore a new aspect of a historical site like this? I think this is kind of the dream for us in every instance. You know, we're constantly finding out more about all of the sites in the National Heritage Collection. That's, I guess, the formal term for all the sites that we look after. And so a site like Portchester Castle, where you have this incredible story, which, you know, is is new, means that we have just so many different opportunities and ways to try to share that story. And we want to to share the things that we learn with the public as quickly as we possibly can, and in lots of as many different ways as we can. Of course, education is one of the most important things that English Heritage does as a charity. And so developing new schools resources, all of which are curriculum linked, is a really important way for us to make an important contribution to education as well. So in addition to the visits you know, that Laura was talking about, in addition to the resources, us having the knowledge is fine, but what's really important is, is how we share it. And so finding as many different avenues and pathways to share the information that we have, especially new information like this, is really important to us and a really important part of of who we are as a charity and and what we and our values. If people aren't li- listening in the UK and perhaps they're even in the Caribbean and they want to access this story, presumably the website would be the first place to go. To look at the Porchester Castle web pages. Yes, absolutely. So if you go onto the English Heritage website, Porchester Castle, I mean, you can Google Porchester Castle English Heritage. It'll all be there. You know, all of our schools resources as well are downloadable from our website for free. So schools anywhere in the world can benefit from them. Of course, they're all linked to the British curriculum, but the information and activities in there are going to work for students anywhere. And if they want to find out more about, if you like podcasts, the Speaking with Shadows podcast episode on the Porchester Prisoners of War is really brilliant. And there are loads of other resources on our website as well. And as I mentioned, the Google Arts and Culture English Heritage page has three different virtual exhibitions with multimedia content produced by um, by this collaboration with the National Youth Theatre and the University of Warwick. So all of that's there. And of course, if you want to read The Ancestors or to perform it, that's available for purchase as well from most booksellers. So if you, all you have to do is look up The Ancestors, Plays for Young People, published by Bloomsbury and by Lakeisha Ariangelo. Multifaceted ways of getting involved in this story. It's great. Laura, you had something else you'd like to add as well. Just that if you're particularly interested in the theatre and the performance, there is a really valuable resource that you can download as educators. And that's a learning pack about performance at Porchester Castle, which really explores how you can use historical sites to inspire your own theatrical performances. So you could become the next Lakeisha. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a rating or a review, we'd love to hear from you. Next week, as thoughts start to turn to Halloween, we'll be back to uncover the horrifying history of Farley Hungerford Castle near Bath. What had happened is she and two of her servants had strangled her husband and chopped him up and burnt him in the castle furnace. Thanks for listening. See you next time.